Father, we are in your presence right now, in the glorious, holy, awesome presence of the living King, the almighty God of the universe. And we bow and worship. We will worship you today, we will worship you tomorrow, we will worship you forever. Oh God, accept our praise, as feeble and weak as it is. Accept our praise this day and come and meet with us in power. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. What is sudden, transformative, and at times life-altering? A conjunction of momentous reversal. A conjunction the word but. It was Paul's favorite writing ploy as he would go from theme to theme in scriptures to introduce this conjunction, usually with the phrase, but now. In the Greek is noon or none day. And Paul would be writing and he would be talking about something and then he would interject this wonderful conjunction, but now, designed to take our thoughts in a different direction, designed to express a dramatic reversal from one situation to another. I was writing in my notes as I prepared for the sermon and I wrote these words down. Watch out for the butts of the Bible. <laughs> and then I looked at that and I thought, well, that, watch out for your language in the pulpit. Uh, it didn't sound quite right. And I thought I shouldn't use it, but I used it anyhow. I remember the first time I heard Dr. Howard Sugden preach. And I feel compelled to tell you he was a pastor here for 40 years. But the first time I heard Dr. Sugden preach in person, his sermon was entitled, But God. And in his wonderful flamboyant fashion, very dramatic, he went through several portions of the scripture where times were bad, but God intervened and changed everything around. Well, after introducing the gospel in the book of Romans, as Paul does in the first few verses, he picks up the subject of human depravity. Chapter 1, verse 18, it goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And dark is the scene, packed heavy with condemnation, dripping with guilt. As we read through those verses over and over and over again, humanity stands condemned by the, the wrath of God. And that was tough sledding going through verse after verse in the early chapters of you're a sinner, you're a sinner. We left off with Romans chapter 3, verse 19. I have it on the screen. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world guilty or held accountable before God. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. It's rather through the works of the law that we become aware and conscious of our sin. And then we come to verse 21. But now. A dramatic change. A conjunction of momentous reversal. Where everything was bad and now the day dawns. And the light bursts forth. And the good news of Jesus Christ is going to be the theme of this book, explained in chapter 3, illustrated in chapter 4, summarized in chapter 5. I mean, we're not going to be able to get enough of it. How glorious it is to know that even though we are sinners, by God's grace, all of our sin can be taken away. But now. It's a fabulous conjunction of eternal consequence. By the way, in the Greek sentence, it's very emphatic, these two words, noonday. It's at the very beginning. So as to show the contrast from the get-go, and it marks that transition from wrath to righteousness. By the way, the Greek phrase, noonday, sounds a whole lot like the English phrase, noonday which means absolutely nothing except every noonday would be a good reminder that even though we were sinners, but now we are saved. Open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Chapter three, Leon Morris, the great Bible teacher from Australia said that this may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. Verse 21 down through verse 26. And it actually connects us way back with chapter 1. I have chapter 1, verse 17 on the screen. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then a quotation from Habakkuk 2, just as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. So one of the first things that comes to us with great power is this truth. The righteousness of God is revealed, and it's revealed only by God. And so what we read and what was introduced in in chapter 1, verse 17... The righteous, uh, righteousness of God is being revealed in the preaching that was going on in that day and in the writing of the apostles, is now mentioned again in chapter 3 and verse 21. Let's see the whole verse. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, revealed. It appears made visible to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This idea of manifestation being made known is in the perfect tense. We've talked about this before, and I don't mean to, to be too detailed, except this is so powerful. And in the perfect tense, something is, is an action, an event that has taken place in time and history that has ongoing consequence. So if someone got married 10 years ago, that condition that came into existence 10 years ago still exists. It happened in the past with ongoing results. And I want you to know that this righteousness is of God as to its source and from God as to its giftedness or grace. Some translations have of God, some translations have from God, and they both give to us wonderful truth that the initiative comes from God himself, nothing on the part of man. And we often quote that phrase from uh, 1 John, we love him because... Thank you, Scott. There it is. <laughs> because he first loved us. God is the one who takes the initiative in grace. We took the initiative in sin. He comes to save. But what has been made known? The righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of God as his attribute, which it is. Not the righteousness of God as a theological term, which it is. But the righteousness of God personified as a person, that's what's revealed. Now this is a law term, righteousness. It means something that is just, something that is according to the law. And Jesus is the personal manifestation of the righteousness of God, not, not just as a reflection, but personified. God in Christ, declaring his perfect righteousness. And notice, this righteousness of God has been made known to us apart from the law. If you go back to verse 20, that according to the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared righteous by simply keeping the law. But now, there is a righteousness from God separated from the law. Now that does not mean that Jesus just said, forget the law, ignore the law, dismiss the law. No, he fulfilled the law. It's not a negation. It's an accomplishment by Christ. He fulfilled the law so that we don't have to because we never could. Give me a chance. I'll obey all the law. How foolish you are. No one can, by keeping the law, be declared righteous in God's sight, but here's a righteousness from God apart from the law. Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law of our attempt to gain righteousness by law keeping. The law, the law is kind of like a mirror. 
Um, we get mad at our mirrors, but it's not the mirror's fault. <laughs> the purpose of the mirror is to show us what exists, and it cannot change us. It only tells us what needs to be changed. The purpose of God's law never intended to change you. That was never its purpose. Its purpose is to show you you need to be changed, to show you what's wrong. The law is a tutor. It cannot save us, but as it says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, it is a tutor to bring us to Christ so we can find redemption. And the law does its job very, very well, as we've seen in the first few chapters. But notice also in verse 21, this amazing truth that the law or the righteousness of God revealed was revealed before. Because way in the past, the law, now here's a bit of a different term, all the scriptures, or the law of Moses, and the prophets of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament scriptures have testified of this righteousness that's coming. And who is this righteousness? It's Jesus. It's not what is, it's who is. And the law the scripture said he's coming. So that's the first thing. The righteousness of God is a righteousness revealed only by the Father himself. Secondly, this righteousness of God is offered to all. Verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, Jew or Gentile. And then notice the parallelism here. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely through the grace or the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 22 may be the most succinct and profound expression of the gospel found in the entire Bible. It was John Stott who said, maybe no verse captures the essence of Christianity better than verse 22. This righteousness from God through faith in Christ is given to all who believe. So that's the second thing. There's some things we're going to overlook in that verse and come back to, but I want you to see that the righteousness of God is offered to everyone. In that particular day in Rome, there was a problem of Jew and Gentile coming together in the church. Now, there was a problem everywhere with Jew and Gentile coming together because of racism and their difficulty to accept others. Paul writes about it in the book of Ephesians as he's talking to the church in Ephesus. But the problem in Rome was even more intensified because as the church began to grow, it was birthed in the Jewish synagogues. And then there was an edict from Claudius that all the Jews must be expelled from Rome, and they were. And so the church that was growing in Rome was primarily Gentile. It became 
a majority of Gentile believers. And then somewhere around 54 AD, the Jews were allowed back into Rome. And when the Christian Jews came back, they found their synagogues populated more by Gentiles than before. Well, we're all Christians here. We don't have a problem with that, right? Oh, there was a problem. And so Paul has been writing, and have you caught it over and over again? To the Jew and to the Gentile, chapter 1. To the Jew and to the Gentile, chapter 3, several times. To the Jew, to the Gentile. There's no difference. No difference whatsoever. And by the way, Paul says, they're all sinners. Now, we've discussed this, haven't we, in chapter 2, that the Jews had a little different view on this. I mean, uh, yeah, they may do a few things wrong, but they're Jews. And salvation is guaranteed to them by being the children of Abraham. So they're different than the Gentiles who are truly lost. Paul says, no, sorry, no difference. And I think you and I have a problem with this. Because we love to differentiate between human beings. And regardless of the distinctions we make between ourselves, God says there's no difference. I like what Bishop Handley Mould said many years ago. He said, the harlot, the liar, the murderer, all fall short of the glory of God. And so do we, said the bishop. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of the valley and we stand on the crest of the mountain, but neither of us are able to reach the stars. Think about that for a moment. When you condemn someone who's lower than you. Oh, and we find them all the time. We, we rarely find the people better than us, but all the time we find the people lower than us. And it makes us feel kind of good to say there's a difference. Like the Pharisee who prayed in the temple, and God, I thank you, I'm not like that guy. You ever prayed that prayer? Sure you have. So have I. And then I hear God say, there's no difference. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of what? That's the standard. It either means that we have no glory of God in us, which is true, or it means that the standard is the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the perfection of God. That's the standard. And know how, no matter how higher you are than someone else, you cannot reach the stars. We're all lost. We're all lost. I'll never forget someone came to South one time and said, I'm never going back there because I'm not that bad. <laughs> it's a big mistake when we say it, isn't it? Big mistake. By the way, it's repeated about nine different times, I think, in this very chapter, if my count is right. All have sinned. Galatians 3.22, the scripture has concluded everyone all under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all. 
who believe. All under sin and all are offered faith. There's no difference in sin and there's no difference in faith. That's the parallelism between verse 23 and 24. So many of us have memorized verse 23 and well we should for all of sin fall short of the glory of God for all of sin. And, and, and that's good, but see it in its context. It's only the admission because the context is the righteousness of God, it's the only the admission of our need that leads to the universal offer of justification, of forgiveness. Paul's purpose was to show that everyone stood under God's wrath, and also his purpose now is to show that everyone is an object of God's grace. The universal offer of the gospel. In chapter 11, verse 32, Paul will say, For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. All have sinned. And all are justified. But you have to take that in its context. Verse 22, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, so all are sinners and all who by faith trust in Christ are justified freely. And that brings us to, I think, one of the great truths of this amazing paragraph, that the righteousness of God is found only in Jesus Christ. That's the last part of the phrase of verse 24. Justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified is the same word as righteousness. They come from the same Greek root word. <clears throat> and it means to be declared righteous. That's what justification means. To be declared righteous. It's a law term again. It's forensic. And it is encouraged to show us that God has made as a judge a public declaration. The judge is the one who says condemned. And the one and the judge is the one who says justified. Both pronouncements come from the same judge, and here is the heart of the gospel. God declares me righteous, not for something that I've done, but for something that Jesus has done. That's the heart of the gospel. Justification is the act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all my sins and declares me righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and received by faith alone. Could you give that again? No. You'll just have to listen to the sermon again. <laughs> I have too many other things to say, but it's a, it's a great definition. I'll give it to you afterward. Pardon takes something from us. The remission of the penalty we deserve. Justification gives something to us. A righteousness that we do not possess. The voice of forgiveness says, you may go free. The voice of justification says, you may come in. 
You need to have your sins forgiven. And you need to have the righteousness of Christ given to you. And those are the two great parts of this wonderful term we call justification. Now, justification, to to be declared righteous, does not mean to be made righteous. That's sanctification. But whoever is justified is regenerated and given a new heart. And that new heart longs to live a holy life. Justification is not based on what we are. It's based on who Jesus is. And that will never, ever change. Oh, if I am justified based on my performance, I'm in big trouble. But I'm justified based on the performance of Jesus. There's a term here in verse 24, after justification, which is a law term, there is a commercial term. It's the word redemption. We are all justified freely, meaning there's no merit involved on our part, nothing we earn or deserve, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the justification is in Christ and the redemption is in Christ. This is a term that was very familiar in the Hellenistic world in which Paul lived because in Rome there was something like 600 million slaves. And there were different types of slaves, but the only way to get out of slavery was by a payment called redemption, a ransom. And so Paul is talking about the fact that you and I indeed are slaves to sin and our only hope is to be rescued and ransomed. And so as righteousness is in a person, so redemption is in a person, Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay the price so that we could go free. By the way, the word ransom is a very specific word. It refers to a particular event that takes place. It's not an idea. It's more than that. It's an actual historic event that takes place. This redemption we're talking about takes place in Christ at the cross, as we sang so wonderfully a few moments ago. The word redemption was used of Israel to rescue them from Egypt and later from Babylon because they were slaves. By the way, many of the names mentioned at the book, at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, give indication that they too were redeemed slaves. It's not an exercise in some abstract theology. This is real life. I'm bound by sin and I cannot free myself. But Jesus comes in and pays the penalty to ransom 
What a great term. But here's another one. By the way, Paul is using some terms that he's never before used or explained, but uses them as though they're familiar to everyone, which probably means that he's leaning upon a well-known creed in some of his statements here. And the next word is found in verse 25, Jesus Christ, of course, was the end of verse 24, whom God presented as a sacrifice of atonement. And we have the word propitiation there, which is in the King James, propitiation, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Sacrifice of atonement is one word in the original, and it literally means the mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. It's only found twice in the New Testament. The other time is in Hebrews 9, uh, verse 5, and it means mercy seat, which is, and now we're taken back to the language of sacrifice from law to commercial trade to religious sacrifice. God presented Jesus as the propitiation. It's a word that is filled with so many things, but I suppose one of the most important things to understand about this word is it has the idea of appeasement of wrath. That's why it's such an embarrassing word. <laughs> propitiation is a word, when you propitiate someone, you are appeasing their wrath. And people say, well, that's an unworthy concept for God. No, it's not. We've just read for three chapters that God is angry with the sinner and his wrath is over him. You say, how can God love and be angry? Do you have kids? <laughs> he loves us, but we've sinned and it's a different context than family. We have broken his holy law and condemnation is over our head. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He says, we're condemned already. That's why he came. Don't you get it? The wrath is over our head. That wrath has to be appeased, satisfied. We can't do it. Jesus does. Wow. He becomes a man because only a man can offer for our sins. But he is still God because only God can be perfect and offer an infinite sacrifice. And the God-man, Christ Jesus, is our propitiation. And dies in our place. And by the shedding of his blood, atones for all our sin. It's amazing when we think about it. And John had to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, expiates, removes the sin of the world. So that propitiation dissolves the wrath of God on those who Now, this was made public, verse 25 tells us. We've already started into verse 25, but in the middle, 
He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. So he's, he's referring to a public time when he did this on the cross to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What sins? Sins of the old covenant. They were not forgotten or ignored, but they had not yet been dealt with. But at the cross, he deals with the past and he deals with the present and the forever. Notice the word demonstrate is verse 20, in verse 25 and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time. To show that he is just and he is justified when he redeems us and saves us. Oh, the question often is asked, how can God be just and save a sinner. In fact, in the book of Romans, it says that he justifies the wicked. And now if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that that's a monstrous idea for a judge. Do not clear the guilty and do not condemn the innocent. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's found in all the judge uh, books that talk about the law. It's a horrible thing to be unjust. When you are a judge, a judge's job is to mete out rightness and condemn the guilty and let the innocent go free. You say, well, how, how then can God be just and justify the wicked? Only one way, the cross. That's it. He doesn't overlook the sin. He pays for it. And now God can be just and justify those who put their faith in Christ. If that is not one of the most beautiful things in all the world, the gospel and the love of God, which brings us to this final thing, the righteousness of God is received only by faith. It's revealed only by God. It's found only in Christ. It's for everyone, and it's received only by faith. We've skipped over this in the verses we've read. Verse 22, righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, to be received by faith. And now in verse 26, he justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's the most common word in the paragraph repeated some 10 different times. And it's not faith in the sense of a creed that we believe in. It's personal trust. It's, it's the response of trust. And so salvation is offered to all because it is needed by all. And it is received only through faith. Now, don't think that faith is something we offer in this thing called salvation. Jesus does the dying work and we offer our faith. No, no, that would be synergism. Now, we truly believe, but it's not our faith that saves us. Faith, I love the way it was put by one theologian, faith is the eye that looks to Christ Faith is the hand that receives the free gift. Faith is the mouth that drinks the living water. 
Salvation is not some type of cooperative enterprise between God and us, said John Stott, in which he contributes the cross and we contribute faith. The value of our faith is not found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in the object, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The old theologian Richard Hooker from the 16th century said, it is not the worthiness of my belief. It is the worthiness in the one in whom I believe. It's all about Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, right? Simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing to offer. To offer. It's all of Christ. When we receive Jesus... We receive righteousness, the righteousness of God given to us. There's the story told of a great and good king who had been overcome by a powerful and wicked enemy. The king said to the enemy, don't touch my people. You can have me, but don't touch my people. And in his eyes, even the enemy could see his devotion to his kingdom. So the enemy came up with this idea. All right. I want you to go into the river, submerge yourself in the river, and hold your breath for two hours. And if you come up, your people will be killed, and I'll let you go free. So the king dove into the river, the enemy expecting him to bob up at any moment. But the king tied his hair to the root of a tree underwater and did not come up for two hours. In fact, he never came up. And he said to his people, I will die for you so that you will live. And Jesus on the cross said, I will die for you so that you will live. How do I live? The righteousness of God has been revealed in the person of Christ and it is received by faith and faith alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray for hearts today who have felt the weight of sin. Maybe they've been with us for several weeks. Maybe they just know that they are a sinner and they don't know what to do with that sin. Frankly, there's nothing we can do with our sin. Let them see that, Lord. But show them what Christ has done and may they simply, with genuine faith, embrace the Savior and be justified, redeemed, and made righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.